Good morning. It's great to be back here. Um, what I'm going to tell you today, in case you like the Cliff Notes version, is I, I taught history for 25 years. And the great awakenings that occurred in the United States, you can read about 30 different versions of how many there are and how many, what they meant. There were two that were well noted. I'm going to simply suggest that we're in need of another great awakening and that we can take a little bit from each of the past great awakenings and we can leave some of the elements behind. Um, so I want to begin with the one that most people know about. Um, I visited Northampton, Massachusetts a couple of years ago because I was curious about the site where Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist preacher, gave some of his most impassioned talks in the first of a series of American Great Awakenings. This religious revival woke people up to the need to reform from within, and the motivating force for this first Great Awakening was an angry God. So I'm going to ask you to imagine, take yourself back to Northampton in 1741, and imagine you're in the pews and... I'm Jonathan Edwards, and to help you out, this is the only time in a platform that I wear a costume. <laughs> so, how many of you read Sinners of the Hand in, in the Hand of an Angry God in college? Yeah, a fair amount of people. Okay. So these are the words that Jonathan Edwards spoke. Uh, it may not be how he sounded. I can't believe the man who wrote these words didn't sound this way, but supposedly he was not quite as much of a, a fiery preacher as we all know, but I can't help myself. So, <laughs> natural men are held in the hand of God over a fiery pit, and they deserve the fiery pit. They are already sentenced to it, and God is dreadfully provoked. His anger towards them is great, as great as those who are actually suffering the executions of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing to abate or appease that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up at any moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them, and the flames gather and flash about them, and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. You, wicked, make it as if you were as heavy as lead and downward with great weight towards the pressures of hell you would fall if God should let you go. You would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into a bottomless pit. Your wickedness makes you as heavy as lead, and the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. But they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty its course once it is let loose. It is true that the judgment against your evil works have not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. There is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the water back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hands from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods and the fierceness of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. If your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, nay, 10,000 times greater than the most stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would not withstand or endure it. The bow of Goth's wrath is bent 
and the arrow is made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and there's nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow from one moment being made drunk with your blood. That God holds you over the fiery pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or loathsome insect over fire, and he abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire, and he looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is so pure, more pure than you, to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Did anybody come in during that? (laughs) Oh, well. How hateful and spiteful. I mean, this goes on for hours and hours and hours, and he didn't just do it once. That was in 1781, on July 8th in Northampton, Massachusetts. And he did it all over the colonies many times. And they're such angry words. But it's not the anger that bothers me. I mean, I admit I'm not always good with anger, and sometimes I'm suspicious about the manipulation that anger can be involved with. But the evangelical preachers of the First Great Awakening in the early 1700s urged us to be a city on a hill, an example to all people. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. But the fact that it used such anger is something that I think is worrisome to me. I mean, I have plenty of anger. We all do. Anger is not a bad thing in and of itself. I mean, we're angry at the greed of the one percenters. We're angry at the fact that in our country black lives don't matter. We're angry at the hostility towards people with alternative approaches to sexuality and gender and identity. And we're angry at the destruction of the the planets. But that's not a bad thing in and of itself. To be an example is not a bad thing. And neither is the uniquely American form of individualism that was wrapped up in the Great Awakening. Because the Great Awakening emphasized that the revolution of spirit has to occur within each individual. It put a lot of emphasis on individual responsibility to change the world. And a lot of people believe that that emphasis of the Great Awakening contributed to the revolution, to the throwing off of a dictatorial, dogmatic regime in England. So that element of individualism, I don't think, in and of itself, is a bad thing. It demanded freedom of speech and conscience and press. But what bothers me, and probably bothers you, is not the anger or the individualism that that speech engenders, but its emphasis on sin and guilt and shame and fear. It's almost obsessive fixation on the darker side of human personality. The conviction that we're so flawed and failed that we deserve to suffer for all eternity. This was the message that most Great Awakening preachers brought, especially George Whitfield, who was actually even more famous than Jonathan Edwards at the time. He brought similar scorned audiences from the Carolinas up through New England. And this dark cloud of pessimism and terror was at first resisted by the rational deist leaders in our country. But I want to give you a clip of some of the words that Benjamin Franklin, a most epicurean and optimistic Quaker, what he said about hearing George Whitfield when he went to hear him speak in Philadelphia with some of his friends. Franklin said, I silently resolved not to give them 
anything. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, five pistoles in gold. And as he proceeded to speak, I began to soften and concluded to give him the coppers. After another stroke of oratory made me ashamed of that, I determined to give him the silver. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. So even Franklin was impressed with the emotion of these evangelical preachers. The dry, rational deism that dominated educated circles in the United States during the First Great Awakening gave way to yearnings of the heart, something that one author called a desire for something deeper than reason. Franklin remained true to his sensible deism and skepticism and rationality, but he appreciated that this yearning for passion affected his fellow colonists. Franklin poured his passion into his civic affairs. He looked to ways to try to revolutionize the United States with what he called a reasonable religious focus on morality rather than miracles. Sounds a little like ethical culture. In Franklin, he said the most acceptable service of God was doing good to man. And that's the direction that I think, away from individual torment towards the construction of a more compassionate community, that was the heart of what was known as the Second Great Awakening that happened about 100 years later. And there's a real pacing to some of these, about a century between each of them. In the early 1800s, the emotional yearnings bubbled up again in terms of what was called the Second Great Awakening through more this desire for intense and direct religious experience within the individual. And some people like William Miller were driven to create evangelical religions that borrowed from the First Great Awakening. Like Jonathan Edwards, William Miller shared a poor opinion of human personality and a terror for what awaited after death. But the revivalist alarm of the early 1800s was very different in that it generated very, very strong social reform in many of our institutions. It, it was wrapped up in the abolition for, of slavery movement, women's rights, temperance, and civic compassion. It spilled out of the churches, the Second Great Awakening, into and civic compassion in terms of greater faith in the inherent goodness of individuals. And it moved us away from this myopic focus on individual salvation into a broader sense that we are saved as a society towards institutional reform. So you had a less apocalyptic and bleak sense of the Second Great Awakening with positive attitudes that you can see in transcendentalism or in other liberal religions that grew at the time, positive attitudes in transcendentalism and, and liberal religions. You can see that in the writings of a lot of Unitarians and Universalists. John Murray, who about a century early broke from Jonathan Edwards, was a Universalist who came to the United States and actually the first settlement is in Murray Grove, a retreat center in the coast of New Jersey where a lot of National Leaders Council meetings occur right at that site. And he planted the seeds for the Second Great Awakening by emphasizing human compassion. He taught that all people could be saved through Christ, thus the universal element. He, like many Quakers, like Franklin, believed that every person within them had some divine goodness, whether it's the inner light that the Quakers talked about. Murray said, You may possess only a small light, but uncover it and let it shine. Use it in order to bring more light and understanding to the hearts and minds of men and women. Give them not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into their theological despair, 
but preach the kindness and everlasting love of God. What a juxtaposition to that first great awakening. Universalism and other liberal religions drew upon this growing sense of Victorian compassion and humanness. Tolerance, forgiveness, respect were seen as basic attributes of human nature. That we were not born sinners, but born basically good. And if that's the case, then why did we have slavery at that time? It's one reason why Charles Finney, some people call him the father of modern revivalism, he woke up the 19th century to the center of college. He was the president of Oberlin College, a well-known hotbed of radicalism at the time, and he rejected the old-school Calvinism of Jonathan Edwards. While he was still attached to an angry god of the Presbyterian sort, he believed that good works in this world was what allowed you to be saved. And that was fundamentally different than the First Great Awakening. The minister, Lyman Beecher, broke from Presbyterianism completely and from his congregational pulpit went on further than Finney and embraced what he said was the fact that sin was not an indelible characteristic of the soul, but was determined by your actions. So sin was what you did or didn't do. Saving others might save oneself. Beecher tried to save others through temperance and abolitionism, but here are some of the flickers of deed before creed in the Second Great Awakening. Mixed up with the Second Great Awakening were activists like Lucretia Mott, the Quaker, who advocated equality in marriage and rights for women, like the right to own property or the right for uh, uh, income, to own income, the right to divorce, child custody rights, unheard of before this point. So, too, Dorothy Dix brought the belief in the goodness of human beings into institutions that literally enslaved and tortured people labeled as having mental illness, demanding reforms, saying that everybody had inherent worth. These elements you can see feeding into ethical culture's founder. Felix Adler took a lot from the Second Great Awakening, particularly from his mentor, Emerson, Waldo was the name of Adler's son that he named after Emerson, who was somebody that he believed in. Emerson at first resisted women's rights, but eventually came around. But he didn't escape the gendered language of his age, that's for sure. That's evident in his essay, Man, the Reformer. (laughs) But the more general point he was trying to make was that the world, to be better, has to be changed by human beings. He wrote in 1841... What is man born for but to be a reformer, a remaker of what man has made, a renouncer of lies, a restorer of truth and good, imitating that great nature which embosoms us all and which sleeps no moment on an old past but every hour repairs itself, yielding more every morning a new day and with every pulsation a new life. The power which at once springs and regulates in all efforts of reform is the conviction that there is an infinite worthiness in man and women. So Emerson, along with Margaret Fuller, Thoreau, and other idealists, were exploring ways to live in community in better ways. And they created utopian communities that I don't have time to go into now, but like Brook Farm and Fruitland. And they believed that as a group you could create small islands of idealism, well, what clearly was true was that these small islands were not enough to change a country as the Civil War tore us apart. Now, I'm going to posit a third great awakening that's not labeled this way, but it's the one that occurred that include government 
And it began in the late 1800s in the form of populism and eventually political progressivism. And you can see the elements of the Great Awakening if you just look at William Jennings Bryan, the populist speaker who rallied workers and farmers and was called the savior of the masses. Victimized by social Darwinism, a lot of the poor of this country rallied around his 1896 Cross of Gold speech, you may have remembered from high school history classes, in which he talked about the fact that the rich were dominating the poor through the manipulation of money. He said the following, I come to speak to you in defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, that of humanity. And he condemned the gold standard, and in the end of his speech, he went into a mock pose where he threw his arms back and his head back like this, like Christ on the cross. And the thunderous applause of the Democratic Convention really showed a sense of revivalist meetings. Teddy Roosevelt, who won out over Bryant being the most popular progressive in the country about 10 years later, many people would not call him as a Great Awakening figure, and he certainly had some uh, ugly sides of him. But he did offer inspirational, almost civic sermons that emphasized that government had to step up and be the reforming tool. So it wasn't enough that the individual in the First Great Awakening changed or that our civic institutions, but our governmental institutions had to be possessed by a reforming zeal and that it was up to human beings, not God, to change the world. He offered what I think of as almost an ethical, pragmatic revolution because he wanted to change the way we did things, but on a very mundane level. He, he said, keep your eyes on the stars, but your feet on the ground. Populists and progressives woke America up to the need of government involvement in the reform of our political organizations. Teddy Roosevelt did that as New York police commissioner, as governor of New York, and eventually as president, where he demanded from meatpacking institutions to boardrooms that people are treated with dignity, integrity, and respect. Unfortunately, not so much if you are a person of color or a Native American. Each of these awakenings awakened a slightly broader circle, each demanding that we broaden this more and more and more. This was wrapped up in the Third Great Awakening in what was called the social gospel, the fact that salvation for all had to be the primary focus of civic concern. So you begin to have greater consumer rights and rights of birth control being spread, of labor, egalitarian monetary policy. I mean, you may not think of the 16th Amendment, which is the amendment for income tax, but that was one of the greatest civic tools to address issues of economic inequality, unheard of 20 years before it was passed as an amendment. Now, from the founding of the New York Society in 1876 on, Felix Adler was deeply involved in what I call this Third Great Awakening. It emphasized reform, not only within the soul like Jonathan Edwards, minus the angry God, but it was an awakening of civic institutions. So ethical culture focused on things like daycare centers, the ethical culture school, education, nursing programs, But it also was an awakening that said that government had to be a tool of reform. And that led Adler and many ethical culture leaders into government commissions or review boards. Involved the reforming of the tenement houses, of child labor, radical racial justice, the support of immigrants. And this heritage of wakeful activism, this awakening, I think, is the one that we want to tap from our heritage. 
You can see it bubbling up in the second half of the 20th century in different ways through the civil rights movement, the ecological movement, the anti-war movement, Occupy, Black Lives Matter. This emphasis that all people matter, that you have to broaden this circle of concern, and that when you use that phrase, you might pull people away from the fact that there are still pockets of deep injustice and inequality in our society. So can we today reform our criminal justice system, the systemic oppression of people of color and the economically disempowered? Are we on the brink of this? There are times that I thought Occupy was going to do that, and then it crashed on the rocks of indifference and media manipulation and maybe our own inability to sustain our passion. But my 25 years of teaching history makes me believe that human beings can make a difference, that you can change the society in fits and starts, two steps forward, one steps back. But we don't need an angry God. We don't even need to demonize people we think are on the other side of our political divide. That anger was useful in the First Great Awakening, but it also can be completely destructive, not just of others, but of oneself. I think that the First Great Awakening was important because it awakened the need to look within, to ask yourself tough questions. But central to this yearning for justice and integrity and fairness Central to progressive humanism is an embrace of love and understanding and a belief that every individual is of inherent worth. So the question to me is not so much, can we get angry like Jonathan Edwards? We certainly can. We see that. The question to me is much more, can we get angry but turn that anger into action, into broadening our circles, into being in other people's shoes and acting with love? Because humanists can't wait for God to change the world. Reform's our responsibility. It can be passionate. It can be angry. But our efforts to change the world have to be fed with love, not shot like an arrow into our heart or others from an angry God. I want to know if we as ethical humanists will help make sure that the contemporary awakening of this country will broaden our circle of concern will it allow us to not be so wrapped up in ourselves and our own smaller problems or our desires for material riches? Can we turn our attention to others? Can we be less like Jonathan Edwards and more like Robert Ingersoll, the great agnostic of the late 1800s who said, happiness is the only good. The time to be happy is now. The place to be happy is here. The way to be happy is to make others so. Justice must flow outwards from our heart through love. Not only personal salvation is necessary, but enriching not just our tribe, but reaching beyond our tribe, beyond our nation, even beyond our species, I believe is the end goal. So let's take personal rejuvenation. Let's add it to the revolution of our civic organizations. Let's channel it into political matters, but with love. That, to me, would be a great awakening. Thank you very much.